Super Talk Mississippi media production. Did you know Toyota Brookhaven has sold more new vehicles the last two years than any other dealership in southwest Mississippi? Come see why. Exit 40 Brookhaven or online at toyotabrookhaven.com. Great service, great savings. At Toyota Brookhaven, we deliver. I'm Steve Azar, and I'm on the other side of the microphone, meaning I'm asking the questions this time, and oh, have mercy for the airwaves. I spent 20 years in Music City, wrote and made some hits, traveled the world, and then moved my family back to the birthplace of American music and where the magnolia trees prosper. And now every time I put my feet on Mississippi soil, when I'm off the road, well, I'm at peace. On this show, it's all about hearing the stories straight from the mouths of the friends I've made along the way, their journey to success. Heck, there might be someone on, I don't even know, but you know how us Mississippi types are. We tend to take well to new company. In a Mississippi minute, all 60 of them. I'm Steve Azar. It's just like that muddy river moving slow. Ain't no worries, it's how life goes. In a Mississippi That's right. In the house today is another musical wonder. He's intelligent. He's always been dedicated to working very, very hard at his craft. A guitarist, an artist, producer, songwriter, author, and president of a record label. In our music biz, he's done it all and continues to do it. From Prince and the Revolution, please welcome to In a Mississippi Minute, Brother Des Dickerson. Hey, how you doing? Good to be with you. <laughs> am I? Are you uh, at home in Nashville? I am. I am uh, sitting here in beautiful Nashville on a very overcast day, but it's still beautiful. All right, everybody uh, seems to be. Uh, we've been talking about the traffic there. It seems like I got out at a good time, and now my traffic is tractors, and I love that. So uh, yeah, I envy you because there's 200 people a day moving here. So. Wow, it's just crazy, crazy, crazy. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, so. Des, let's break it down. We're going to go back um, uh, for my listeners. Uh, if you uh, w- were a Prince in the Revolution fan like I was, and so many, uh, uh, I mean, there's sort of transcended uh, genre of people to me and race. Uh, you guys were one of the bands that did that. You sort of represented us all uh, and took us on a, a trip that is like no other. It was so unique and uh, there was never another Prince in the Revolution, as far as I'm concerned, and there was nothing like it. Uh, let's talk about growing up, first of all, because I love digging in the past. I, I'm a believer in that, knowing sort of what got you to the days uh, of meeting Prince. Uh, take me back to being a kid growing up. Well, I was born and raised in, in St. Paul, Minnesota. My parents were actually originally from Clarksville, Tennessee. Um, Come on. My dad moved up first to go to school, and uh, he had he and my mom had been next-door neighbors growing up. My mom could not stand my dad when they were kids. <laughs> and he moved away, uh, like, wrote her letters daily for like a year, convinced her to stop hating him and actually marry him. Came down to Clarksville, married her in her aunt's living room, brought her to Minnesota. So that's where I was born and raised. Born in a, a, a music-loving home, because my dad actually was a sax player had played, starting at age 11, in a dance band, kind of touring all through the Southeast, but quit to, you know, go to school, actually joined the Navy, got out, and wanted to raise a family. So uh, I grew up, you know, hearing, waking up in the middle of the night and hearing four people in my living room playing saxophones. I mean, that was Mm. kind of where I came from. 
Wow. Well, you know, I have a song off my Waiting on Joe record that, that I wrote called My Heart Wants to Run, and it says, all the space between love and hate really ain't that far and must be the reason why my heart wants to run to you. So so it's the truth. I love how your dad was able to – he's very convincing, wasn't he? <laughs> oh, yeah. Persuasive man. I think I inherited some of that. But. Well, okay, so – so you grew up basically, uh, you, so you go up in Clarksville, you're in Minneapolis, and this is obviously how you and Prince get to meet, but take us back growing up, uh, musically, when did you pick up the guitar, uh, did you have your own bands going, uh, you know, what was going on well before this, the, the national global success? Well, you know, my, my dad had this huge record collection, and he was a sax player, like I said, but what started to just reach out and grab me was anything with guitar on it. He had this King Curtis 45, and on the B side of it, it was this raucous kind of rock and roll thing, and that just, you know, caught my attention. So, you know, when the Beatles came along, all those other things, even though my dad, in his heart of hearts, wanted me to follow his footsteps and, and play sax, it was actually my first instrument in junior high school band. After a year of saxophone, it was like, you know, Mom, Dad, this is killing me. I don't like playing saxophone. I want to switch to guitar. And they always supported me in my choices. So family actually bought me my first guitar, this 2995 Radio Shack used to sell instruments yeah. back there back then. So I got a guitar from Radio Shack. And I started a band within, you know, like two weeks of taking my first guitar lesson wow. and never looked back. I had to actually pay to get in my first show, played yeah. <laughs> a ninth grade dance at my junior high and had to buy a ticket to get in. It's funny, you're bringing up a, a, a sore subject. I actually uh, was at Cabo Wabo with some friends, and, I, and uh, you know, I'm supposed to be past paying to play. And so the band yeah. wanted me to get up and jam, so I got up and jammed, and then all of my friends had the alligator arms, and so I had to pay for, like, the sweet area we were in. And I was going, like, I think I just paid to play. You know, I mean, I, I did that <laughs> yeah. as a kid, but I... <laughs> so the anyway... The more they change, the more they stay the same. <laughs> they sure do. We're talking to Des Dickerson, uh, great recording artist, guitar player, author. Uh, we're going to dig into uh, his book that he wrote uh, a while back and also just work our way to Prince and the Revolution. Uh, so, Des, you go to college or did you go straight I, I to did. work? You know, I went straight to work because, again, I started playing and started playing full time while I was still not full-time, but, you know, professionally while I was still in high school. At age 15, um, a booking agent got wind of me. There was a, a guy in Minneapolis who played drums with a guy named Robin Trower, who was huge yeah. uh, in globally at that time. And he told this agent guy about me, hey, there's this 15-year-old kid who plays like Jimi Hendrix. So agent hunted me down, signed me at 15. I'm getting notes from my parents to get out of school early on, you know, Fridays, most weekends, so I can go out of town and play get back so I could be in school again on Monday. And that continued until I graduated high school and, uh, you know, went to a trade school, computer uh, engineering, you know, could have been in that early wave of Bill Gates and that whole thing. Mm -hmm. But instead, man, for me, it was about getting on the road. Did I want to go to college? Ended up playing at a lot of other people's colleges. Right. Just, for me, it was the College of Musical Knowledge with a, a doctorate from the School of Hard Knocks. Yeah. Right, right. Well, I was doing the same thing. I was playing uh, at in, in high school and in college, 
Uh, but mm-hmm. I uh, uh, and I just didn't go to class a lot. So I, you probably went yeah. to class as much as I did. And uh, but somehow I got through it. But by the time I graduated, we had two hundred one nights one nighters on the books. We had two twenty eight foot trucks. We had ten guys on the payroll. We were rolling, you know, and playing like oh, yeah. you said a lot of colleges. And man, we'd play anywhere that let us. We're talking to Des Dickerson, Des, take us back to Minneapolis and the music scene when you're growing up. Uh, what was it like there? The great thing about Minneapolis, the Twin Cities in general, was that there were there was an abundant number of live music clubs that embraced live music, and, and the you know the, the people of the city embraced live music. So you could actually make a living there. A lot of people moved there from other parts of the country because now you had to play cover music the vast majority of the time. Right. But if you built up enough of a following, the club owners would kind of let you do what you wanted. So. I grew up hearing some great local bands that were really a lot better than a lot of the, you know, the label signed acts at the time and had some, you know, some great sort of mentorship to ascribe to. Um, so it was great, man. It was, uh, it was a great education. Like I said, I was able to, I was playing full time, uh, earning my living by the time I was 18. Um, and the, the other great thing about it is it was a racially ambiguous music scene. I mean, there were rock bands, there were funk bands, there were bands that were like a hybrid of the two. A lot of bands that were multiracial. So you had, you know, you had bands with, you know, black frontmen singing, you know, Grand Funk Railroad songs. Actually, I was one of them. So, you know, it was just a, it was a very different cultural environment as well as musical environment. And that definitely informed kind of what the music scene became and definitely informed what Prince of the Revolution became. Love it. Love it, love it, love it. We're talking to Des Dickerson. He is in Nashville, but he was uh, raised cutting his teeth and uh, wearing out a guitar on the streets of Minneapolis and beyond. Okay, so did you get your first record deals? You know, we did a lot of independent recording. I had a band. We did a lot of of writing and recording that was unreleased, and, you know, we shopped a lot of things. You know, I was doing it for 10 years before joining Prince. So there was a level of practical experience that I had that I was actually able to and blessed to be able to pass on to him because he was still fairly green with respect to, you know, the, the, the practical side, that the the working of, of your business in terms of the band structure and, and you know, rehearsals and, and what you had to do to tour and, and, and survive practically on the road. So, yeah, the label thing was, was interesting only in that, you had a lot of people with opinions, mm-hmm. but very little practical background at that point in time. There, there weren't a whole lot of folks. I mean, there were some, and we were in Warner, and Warner, to me, at that time, is still the greatest label ever. So you had a lot of people who were former musicians and producers that were executives, and, you know, people who weren't. Mo Austin was the greatest record executive in history, but he didn't play. He just... He loved people. He loved music he and people, right. Man, and he loved music. People. Ahmed Erdogan. So it, was, it was an education. Yeah, there's Ahmed Erdogan, yeah, who Ahmed. I used to slip in and out in New York, and he was trying to figure me out. There was John Hammond uh, at CBS. Mm-hmm. Ahmed, obviously, him and his brother uh, were the founders of Atlantic. Those guys were all music lovers. They, like you said, they, you know, they were great about finding talent, uh, things that moved mm-hmm. them. And whatever moved them, that's what they tried to pawn off on the rest of it. And I, I use that word pawn in a very loose way. I mean, basically, yeah. you know, put in front of us, and, and it was the creation of it all. Talking to Des Dickerson, I'm Steve Azar. You're in a Mississippi Minute. We'll be right back.
It's easier than ever to hear Super Talk anywhere. Now you can get Super Talk Mississippi on Amazon Alexa devices. Just go to supertalk.fm slash Alexa to find out more. For news, politics, sports, and the good things happening in Mississippi, the conversation starts here. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, right here on Super Talk Mississippi. Steve Azar, we are with the great Dez Dickerson. I love saying that word, Dez. I mean, I see my parents, <laughs> they should have named it like Steph, not not Steve. It's just so so obvious. Well, there you go. I could have been a Joe or a Freddie because there's a hundred of them in my family. And and Dez, where's the name Dez come from? You know, there was a sax player named Johnny Desmond, a jazz player um, that my, my dad was a fan of. So he took my first name from his last name. Um, interesting thing is when when we signed with or, or when I joined the band, and the publicity department actually in an early press release changed the speculation to spell it with an S. You know, because the oh, yeah. Desmond, the, the contraction Des, but people would mispronounce it. They would say Des, whatever. <laughs> so the, the publicity department made the executive decision to change it to a Z, um, uh-huh. because Zs look stronger in print, and it was the best decision ever. Because you know, Dez is like this, you know, sort of branded, yeah. you know, burned in people's cerebral cortex. Kind right. of. There's only two guys that you know that you associate with that name. And by the way. The other one was named after me. His uncle was one of our bodyguards. So, mm-hmm. yes, Des Bryant was named after me. Come on. Yep. Des Bryant, sure. Bryant the, one, the Cowboys, right? The uh, That's right. So That's tell right. me the connection again one more time. I need to, I'm having coffee right now, so our listeners can make sure we get that. <laughs> His uncle, James Bryant, who we call JB, was part of our security team. James influenced his, his sister into naming her son after me. So Unbelievable. Bryant, spelled D-E-Z. Des He's, Bryant was named after Des Dickerson. That's crazy. I, didn't, I did not know that. Speak. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, very few people do. Yeah, no, no. I know. I love it. Well, that's crazy. That's an interesting story. That's well, awesome. Okay, so Des, we're making our way. Let's start talking about Prince. Your first time to meet him. How'd it go down? You sound like you were a little older. Uh, you know, the, with mm-hmm. your previous conversation. So, um, yeah. how did how, how did it happen? When did when did you guys connect? Well, the interesting thing is that there was uh, an ad in a local music paper um, in the the w- early winter of '78, and uh, the ad simply read, "Warner Brothers recording artist seeks guitarist and keyboardist for touring back." Now, there was only one person within 600 miles of the Twin Cities that had a record deal. I knew it was Prince. Didn't know him, knew of him, because as I had been earlier in my career, he, he was kind of an urban legend in town. You know, one of those guys you hear about at the music store. Hey, have you heard this kid kind of thing? And when he got signed, my younger sister actually bought the album. Even though I no longer lived at home, you know, I, I would stop by the house. I borrowed it, listened to it. Typical youthful arrogance. I thought, well, yeah, it's pretty good. But ah, I could have done better. They should have yeah. signed me kind of thing. <laughs> um, but when I, when I saw the ad and knew that it had to be him. I was in a band that I had started that about a year in was in that death spiral that bands kind of go into. Yeah. And I knew, okay, th- this thing is the next train out of town, and I'm going to be on it. So I called, <laughs> arranged an audition. Typically, I was on my way out of town for a gig the day of the audition. The entourage was late. I had to go to the manager and say, hey, would you be kind enough to let me go first? 
because my band is waiting for me in you know East Crevice, South Dakota, somewhere. Yeah. And um, fifteen minute audition. Prince and I talked for about you know the ten minutes afterward. Um, kind of a, a, a gentleman's arrangement was made. His thing was, hey, if you come help me do my thing, you know, I'll help you go back to doing your thing later on. Deal. That was it. And that was it. So did he, did they try out anybody else afterwards that you know of, or did they just end it right there, just stop? The funny thing is they had tried out, and I've heard it was as many as 100 guys, and that itself may be an urban legend, because, you know, in talking to some of the guys since, in, in trying to, you know, piece it together, they, they auditioned a lot of guys in New York and L.A. That, that's what Oh, okay. Oh, that's so, what they were doing. So what happened was after my audition, Prince started calling me up. I'd get a call once, twice a week, you know, to be like, Des, Prince, can you come over to the house? <laughs> and, you know, we, me, him, Andre Simone, we'd sit in the living room, and we would jam on some of the songs from the record, but it, it always ended up, you know, being expansive and going into 18 different genres. And, you know, because that was the nature of, of, of what we all were about. And after about a month of that, I showed up at the house one day, and uh, Owen Husby, Prince's manager, was standing in the kitchen. He handed me a check. <laughs> so at that point, I was like, well, I guess I got a job. Yeah. So I, <laughs> nobody said, welcome to the club. No, nothing. They just handed me a check. Yeah. Uh, you know, so you bring up an interesting point. Relationships, relationships, relationships. Mm-hmm. The three most important things I believe in anybody's lives are those things. <laughs> so I think that it's that important. And you can't just go in there and be contrived or just all of a sudden go, I'm going to build a relationship today. I mean, it's, right. it's different, especially in music. You're, you're selling the soul and the heart of things, and it's really got to fit. And I think what was happening was he was probably, the hour just hanging. Do you mm-hmm. think you look back in times and go, look, you were sort of still being tested before the first check because wanted to make sure that it just sort of was blending? Um, I mean, I know for me, it took me a long time to get the guys, all the guys in, in one bus that I mm-hmm. loved like brothers, you know, love more than brothers. You know, we're forced into yeah. our brotherhood and I love my brothers, but but, mm-hmm. the you know, the brothers that we have genetically, but the brothers that we make in life, you know, it just there's such a strong bond uh, because you chose it. And so Absolutely. when you finally get to that point, do you feel like maybe looking back that you were sort of being tested even still? So? You know, it's funny because. I had the opportunity to, you know, talk to again a couple of the guys, to Andre and and Bobby Z, and they have slightly different perspectives. But but the one thing that I do know is that part of what was appealing to both Prince and Andre, because Prince and Andre at the time were more like the brothers Johnson. It wasn't, you know, Prince the star. It was Prince and Andre, the guys that had grown up and had lived in Andre's basement, and you know, we're going to do this thing together. Their whole take on it was, I was so confident because I, I was. I was much more like the other devs when I was young. <laughs> and, and I was so confident that I gave them the impression that, look, you know, I, yeah, this would be cool, but I don't need you. I'm going to do this with or without you. Yeah. And they were both, at the same time, like enamored of that, but at the same time terrified of it because it's <laughs> like, well, you know, this guy's, what's this guy's ego like? So ultimately, yeah, I think you're right. It was, it, it was a matter of kind of acclimating for a time and going, okay, He's really just like like we are, because all three of us had that attitude. Yeah, they just kind of had to get comfortable with the fact that he's cool, and this is this is you know we're going to be the the biggest you know three headed Hydra front fronted band ever because it's right. three front men, and we can work it out. 
I love it. You're like the Golden State Warriors. Uh, sorry, Timberwolves, exactly. but I think a little bit more of having you know Katie and Steph and Clay and and that group. You you can have you can have superstars on one team that as long as the superstars it works and gels. You know, we're talking to Des yeah. Dickerson. Uh, Des, okay, so you used to play without a shirt, correct? That's right. And you used to wear the headband. The way the no shirt actually both came about in interesting ways. The no shirt thing was I I would take my shirt off from time to time because coming up. I was a huge fan of uh, Mark Farner, the front man from Grand Funk Railroad, when I right. was first starting to play. So I would occasionally play shirtless with friends. There was one night in the dressing room, he came over and said, "Look, dude, if, if I if I was if I had your physique, I would never wear a shirt." <laughs> so from that point on, I just I just didn't wear a shirt on stage. The headband thing, I kind of brought that back again from my beginnings in playing Hendrix stuff and from time to time wearing a headband because he did. One day in soundcheck, our lighting director was wearing this kamikaze headband that he had found in, like, Chinatown. We were in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or not Chinatown, but he had found somewhere. <laughs> and he, he came up in rehearsal and said, hey, you should, you should wear this. After soundcheck, <laughs> I went to give it back to him, and he said, you know what? No one should ever wear that but you. And from that point, that was it. So the trademark, the, the brand, actually came from my lighting director. Wow. So I love you, and, you know, I owe it all to you. No, man, you know, I just love that because it's such a memory. You know, I realize, man, mm-hmm. so I'm trying to get a record deal while you guys are killing it. So you got to understand, <laughs> my I was as confident and my frustration with it, and I knew I had to get better as a songwriter. And also, I was, I was lacking direction because I was always susceptible to the guys that were playing with me. So the songs I wrote, I was writing it as a kid, 11, 12 years old, if I'd go with these group of guys to play with them, it turned into whatever it was they were. So I was always, right. my songs would go through this grapevine and then they would lose that thing, you know? So it took a lot of years for me to get it right. Uh, but I love that you talk about Grand Funk. You know, Don Brewer, when we did the Seeger tour, well, Bob, Don's obviously been playing with Bob for a long time and Don would come out every show. I think we did. 50 shows together in 06, 07. And he'd come out at this song that I wrote as a kid uh, called Flatlands. I ended up taking it and collaborating with a great writer named Roger Murrah. And then I ended up taking the choruses and throwing them away and just became a jam. And so this was on my uh, a couple of records of mine. But the first time I ever played it was for the tribute of Stevie Ray's passing. Albert King was to my left sitting there at the Delta Blues State Delta Blues uh, wow. Festival and also uh and it was right before I went to Nashville. And then the great son Thomas, legendary blues legend was on stage with me and I was stumbling through this song I was writing, right? It was like this process. But every once we got it and recorded it live and it was on a record and we were playing it for especially Seeger's crowd, Don would come out every night and he would bring his sticks to the side of the stage and he would basically play this jam with us to kind of loosen up. And that was the biggest awesome. compliment, man. It was like, I just, I, flip, I was flipping out because he said it got him, it got him all ready. It got him pumped. It was his eye of the tiger, basically. We're talking to Des Dickerson. <laughs> I'm, awesome. I'm, I'm floating my boat right now. I'm actually gloating because it's a big deal to me, you know, having great musicians dig what you do. We're in a Mississippi Minute. We're going to uh, turn hardcore Prince in the Revolution, Purple Rain, all of it, when we get back. Stand by. Feeling down? 
Here's your prescription for a daily dose of good news and positive vibes. Good Things with Rebecca Turner. Every afternoon, Rebecca highlights all the good things happening right here in the state you call home. Daily exposure to good things with Rebecca Turner may cause smiling, feelings of positivity, happiness, and even laughter. When you experience these symptoms, tell your friends to listen. Okay. Weekdays starting at 2 p.m. here on Super Talk Mississippi and now on Amazon Alexa devices. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, right here on Super Talk Mississippi. I'm Steve Azar. You're in the downside of a Mississippi Minute with Des Dickerson, Prince and the Revolution. Okay, we got a book and we got all that, and I guess all that's going to be intertwined in this segment and the final one. So, Des, take us to your first album. What was the first record you guys made together? The first record we did together was his second album, which was just his self-titled Prince album. That record had uh, the single um, I Want to Be Your Lover on it, which was like the first gold record that got us on American Bandstand and did my special that whole thing. And so, you know, it was interesting because Prince, the the whole hook that the the pitching of his initial record deal was predicated on was the one-man band thing, you know, And, and Warner really thought they signed this sort of mashup of Stevie Wonder and Smokey Robinson because of the smooth falsetto. But really, what they got was this kid who loved every kind of music but wanted to lead a rock and roll band that had kind of the bravado of the Rolling Stones, the musicianship of, you know, Mahavishnu Orchestra, (laughs) and, you know, the sort of teen appeal of, you know, fill in the blank with whoever you want to fill in the blank with. So we, you know, straightforward, once we started kind of recording together became more of a rock band. And it was a process, because at first, he would work with the band in creating the music and then go record it himself. By the time we got to um, the Controversy album, he started to bring us into the studio. And by the time we got to the 1999 record, it was a full-on, you know, kind of collaboration where people were, you know, sharing lead vocals like I did with him on 1999 or, you know, creating solos like the one on, on Lil Red Cordette, which still cracks me up that that solo was voted or, or named by Guitar World magazine as the number 64 greatest solo of all time. And it was kind of one of those go in, lay down, you know, five different passes of it and comp it down to a single solo. And, wow. You know, it took all of 45 minutes. But uh, that's kind of the nature of the business, I guess. Well, you were prepared You were prepared for that moment. I mean, that just is, uh, you know, all that you can look back in your life and everything from playing the sax to getting the guitars to doing your thing to playing covers to do whatever. That moment, they collided. That was just meant to be. That was all that work. And that moment uh, turned into rock and roll history, and it couldn't have happened if you didn't have all your past to pull from. I believe that, you know? I believe that we practice so much, and we do good Mm -hmm. things so much, but the greatness comes out because you've earned it, right? Absolutely. Success is where preparation meets opportunity. I I fully believe that. Right, and that was that moment. I love that. I mean, you think about it. You can sing every note. That's what I love about your guitar playing, uh, and, I, and I'm not going to jump around too much, but I do want to know sort of in, just when you're hearing solos and, and you're listening to the songs, is it just something that's so natural for you at this point after all the work is put in? Did it get to the point where it was just in your subconscious and it was second nature? Absolutely. You know, what you do is you, you work, you practice to develop the, the muscle memory. I mean, to, to kind of break it down technically, but the idea is to get that out of the way 
So there's no hindrance between your soul and that expression. So for me, I I see the notes in my head. I feel them, you know, in my gut, and I see them, and I see myself playing what it is I'm hearing, and then just play it. You know what I mean? But you've got to practice and work to get to the point where your body is no longer a hindrance. Your body is just going to do what what your mind tells it to do. And athletes do the same thing and whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You get in that zone and you go. We're talking to Des Dickerson, uh, great guitar player, uh, running a record label right now, doing all sorts of things, which is the sort of the uh, journey of a musician that's that's got his brain power, which is it was unusual in our business. And I love I love just all that you've done and and encompassed in your career so far. Uh, I think you're just getting started. I think we're only getting better, you and I. And let, so let's let's talk about Absolutely. let's talk about Prince and the Revolution. Okay, so uh, Purple Rain. I mean, let's get to Purple Rain. So we're we're you've mm-hmm. made that record. Purple was it? Women was Purple Rain before. The record that had when when doves cry. What, give me. Yeah, I'm confused. Purple Rain. Purple Rain was the record with doves. The, the record oh, before okay. it, okay. 1999, was the big breakthrough. That That's was right. The single 1999, Little Red Corvette. That was the breakthrough. And actually, between 1999 and and Purple Rain was the breakdown. There was the breakthrough, but then there was the breakdown. So in and what regard? Where in regard to my involvement in the band, and it was one of those, it's like it is with your biological brothers. You know, you may love each other, but there comes a point, you know, where you're teenagers, where, you know, you, you start <laughs> you start throwing hands and, and, you know, trying to knock one another out. <laughs> right. So it, it came to a point, actually it came to a head on that 1999 tour, um, where it was clear to me that, the, again, the gentleman's agreement that Prince and I cut in the parking lot of Dell's Tire Mark, which is the place where we did the initial audition, was that I would help him do his thing until it was time for me to go back to doing my thing and be a front man and, and, and be a, a singer and, and a writer and that whole thing. And it just came evident that it was time to do that. So the preparation for Purple Rain happened while I was in the band. The, the screenwriter um, that wrote the initial screenplay and script literally was on the bus with us for the first, you know, couple of months of the tour. So everything in that film, in terms of the storyline, actually was was a dynamic that was present in the band. The the combination of Wendy and Lisa in the film and the, the tension over the songs, mm-hmm. that actually was me and Prince. And when the script was originally written, it was a conflict between Prince and I. Wow. But that, that, that conflict became so tangible and again it wasn't we didn't have screaming matches and it was nothing like that i just became so unhappy that he and i came to that mutual agreement that it was time for me to you know click into that uh that <laughs> that aspect of our gentleman's agreement and go ahead and pursue that solo thing so i did a cameo appearance in the film purple rain right there's a scene where i'm doing a song called modern air and that was kind of my my launch back into being a solo artist I love it. We're talking to Des Dickerson. So the guy's on the bus, the screenplay writer, and he's sensing all this that's going on, turns you into the two girls. I, I love that. I mean, just what a great, yeah. what, um, I'm, he was so aware of, he was really, really paying attention, I guess, is, is, the, is the way to say it. So this becomes, first of all, you look at 1999. Let's back up a little bit, okay? You look at that, and and the song obviously was like, being it was being brewed and constantly stewed and cooked 
until the year you reached you're going to party like it's 1999 what a brilliant you know it's it's brilliant because you had all this time leading up to it and when was that record released what year it was actually released in like 82 so you got 17 18 years 18 2000 when the clock i mean it becomes the theme song as it gets closer to the the turn of the century it's just amazing the wild thing was because of the whole y2k thing it, it it was even more prophetic in a sense and that became the theme song for we have no idea what's going to happen when when this odometer rolls <laughs> yeah. over and we hit the year 2000. It was, like, brilliant. Unbelievable. We're talking to Des Dickerson. It's only getting better. I'm Steve Azar. You are in a Mississippi Minute, and we're still in the third segment. I love that. Uh, so, Des, um, so you, Little Red Corvette, you got Party Like It's 1999. Uh, you go on and you start doing your solo thing. Okay, so I'm wearing the T-shirt right now, and uh, uh, we grew up big Billy Idol fans, and my wife is a huge bit. She loved Billy Idol growing up, right? And uh, if I think that if she'd have seen me or him, and it'd been it'd been in the same place, the same bar, that she would have never seen me. <laughs> so we love Billy. So you spent time on tour with him on the re- on the biggest tour of his life, which was Rebel Yell, arguably, right? Absolutely. Um, did you do that whole run with him as a solo act? I did the whole tour with the exception of a few Canadian dates. But, uh, yeah, we started out in the uh, fall, early fall of 3 and continued on through almost into the fall of 84. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I would do the opening set. I had my band. Initially, the label wanted us to call it the Modern Airs, but when our relationship with the label was not brought to fruition, hmm. I decided, nah, I don't. I don't want to use that name, and it was the Des Dickerson band. So we right. opened every night. Billy and Steve brought me back out for uh, for the encore, and I did Money 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 Money. Yeah, stage what, they did the remake. Night. We're talking to Des Dickerson. I'm Steve Azar. Des, you get to play DJ real quick. I'm gonna, I'm going to make cool. it difficult on you. You know, Miss, you know, Minneapolis had a great music scene. I know, I know, I know. And so, and you're in Nashville, and obviously it's uh, Music Row. Well, what's left of Music Row is there, and, and it's Music City. But Mississippi's the birthplace of American music. So tell me, uh, lead us into the break with, you can listen to a little Albert King, the old, or I'm going to bring you in with something new, and you got to go check it out if you don't know. His name is Jerika Singleton. I love Albert King. I, I, I cut my teeth on, on blues music. Freddie King, you know, all the Kings, B.B. Yeah. King. So you know what you know what I would love to hear, actually some some cream because Eric Clapton was influenced by all those cats. All right, but he kind of recombined it, and the song Crossroads is the thing that inspired me to play guitar. Oh well, there you go. That's what we're going to play. And in fact, I have written many songs with with uh, a guy named Tony Colton who actually wrote Cream songs. So it's perfect. So we're going to play Crossroads uh, by Cream. You're with Des Dickerson. I'm Steve Azar. We are in the Mississippi.
It's easier than ever to hear Super Talk anywhere. Now you can get Super Talk Mississippi on Amazon Alexa devices. Just go to supertalk.fm slash Alexa to find out more. For news, politics, sports, and the good things happening in Mississippi, the conversation starts here. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, right here on Super Talk Mississippi. Steve Azar, appreciate you guys hanging in with us. Guest today is amazing. Uh, he's become a good pal of mine. I want you to take me through your record label president time that you're dealing that you're doing right now, and talk also about being a president versus, like you said, dealing with people that were coming and going. Being the kind of record label president that you always wanted to probably have in your life. Well, the, the book came about. Actually, let me let me take the. The, the record label side first because I, I left the band um, like I said did the solo thing toured with Billy and and walked away from my solo career right at the point where it, it was about to take off to the next level because I felt it was time for me to transition right. the thing that had been building up in me from from early on was that I I did everything that you can do in the music business hands on first person from you know booking, things that we have terms for now, like branding and imaging and positioning, all those things I did when we didn't have terms for them in bands where you had to wear every hat from from being your own road crew to being your own booking agent to being your own road manager, all of it. Right. So uh, along the way, you learn what works and you learn what doesn't work. You, You learn what you wish people would have done and the way they would have done it. And you have great mentors, like you mentioned, where there are people that you learn a lot from. Mm-hmm. So by the time I came to that place of knowing it was time to transition, I knew how I wanted it to look. Now, I still I went to work for a label for five years as VP of A&R and learned how to apply all that practically. found out a lot of what I thought was genius was crap, and it doesn't work in, in practical, you know, everyday applications. Right, but in that experience, I was able to kind of make it all, you know, make the, the creative meet the practical. Left, started my own label, and exactly right. I, I, my goal was to be the kind of record company head that I wish I had had, and I, I wanted it. to have a label that thought like a management company, that thought like a marketing company. And lo and behold, X number of years later, that's where all the majors have gone, where they consider themselves entertainment companies and not labels. So. You know, the, the, the good news is I had the vision and kind of, you know, pioneered that trail. Mm-hmm. The bad news is we never reached the level of success of a Warner Brothers. Or well, it's, it's just difficult whatever. because they're dragons. I mean, we have the same thing. We have Ride yeah. Records, and I have this consulting sort of deal. I love mentoring. I've had a couple people mm-hmm. who've got record deals now that I feel like I had a big part in sort of helping round them off and get them ready. Uh, mm-hmm. As time went on, I learned that you can't be – making them to be something they're not i spent all these exactly. years trying to be the great my great mentors trying to be more like them they wanted me to be more like them do the kind of write the kind of songs they that they loved or did i couldn't be that and so i've always learned now that you got to be riding shotgun you got to make that artist has to be driving and you got to go right. oh you missed a turn or you got you got to be there for that but uh, anyway, so I really, really love this side that you're talking about the business because I felt like I also ran into a lot of people that really just sort of shouldn't have been there. But it, but it's easier said than done. 
and you get into right. the situation and you deal with a lot of dynamics and a lot of personalities. We're talking to Des Dickerson. We've gotten the music business figured out and we've, you know, we're David versus Goliath. It's a tough deal. Okay. So let's, <laughs> right. let's get right. into your book, My Time with mm-hmm. Prince. Uh, I want to tell, get people to see how they can go get it. Uh, and also uh, anything else that, you know, you're working on right now. Well, the, the book came about because, again, there came a point where the, the story needed to be told. You know, over the years, I've been, and it, obviously it intensified after he passed away. But, you know, everybody and, and their, their dog and their goldfish has been after me to contribute my insights and knowledge of the story to, you know, their book or their, their documentary or whatever. So the, the book was really just an effort to share as the subtitle of the, of the book says, Confessions of a Former Revolutionary, the, the idea was just to take that, you know, five years of, of my life and my experience in what was, to me, the most intriguing part of any iconic career is, how did this happen? How did it go from nothing to something? Mm-hmm. So to kind of bring people back behind the velvet rope, right? Kind of, mm-hmm. you know, get, get in the DeLorean with Doc and, and you know, go back to the future. Um, and just kind of take him on that ride. So that that's how the book came about. That was what I wanted to achieve with it, and, and it, it seems to have done that. I mean, people, it's been out for a while now, but people, I can't say how many times people have written or, or talked to me face-to-face and said, I sat down and I read it in one sitting. I, I You know, I stayed up all, all day and all night and just read through the book because I couldn't stop. Wow. And that's, that's the highest compliment I can get. Just so the talent is one thing. It's un, it's um, obviously unparalleled. But Des, I can't thank you enough. Hug Selena and, and Sweet Cannon for me, and uh, we're gonna miss you this year at Delta Soul. But uh, everybody, check out My Time with Prince by Des Dickerson and his music, and just uh, the days of Prince and the Revolution and everything. What a remarkable story! And I appreciate you taking the time to be with me. Oh, my pleasure, my pleasure. It, it, always a, a great time talking and getting together and we will be a Delta Soul 2019 you can bet on that I love it brother alright get back to uh, driving those prices the house housing prices up in Nashville for me <laughs> no I'm telling people no don't move here don't move here it's terrible you wouldn't like <laughs> alright brother be well alright thanks I'm Steve Azar in a Mississippi Minute all 60 of them where you can take your sweet time When breaking news affects you in Mississippi, you'll hear it first right here. News Mississippi. Trusted. Experienced. And on top of the stories that matter to you. News Mississippi. Keeping you informed on Super Talk Mississippi. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.